We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. UB professor, Jacob Nyheisel, and professor, before we get into political talk, how about those UB Bowls yesterday? Oh, it was great. I, I wish I could have been there, but uh, yeah, it's exciting to, to read after the fact that uh, UB is uh, stampeding through the MAC, as it were. I'll tell you, after after an 0-3 start, uh, I don't think anyone expected it, but it's great to see this surge. And you know, Buffalo football right now is the best football. I think that's right. I, yeah, I was unfortunately there for the the Holy Cross loss, and I was I was kind of questioning what happened when it got to the you know MAC games. But hey, I was I was wrong, and I'm happy to say that. Yeah, sometimes you just need those losses. Um, now, politics all over. You know, this is something I focus on so much, and it's the political divide. I, I think I talk about it so much on this show, people are sick of me talking about it. Uh, but this divide, we see it in Albany. We see it in Washington. Heck, we see it over in the U.K. And, and I got to ask you this question. You know, we, we saw – I just learned how, um, how uh, leaders were elected in a parliamentary system. We've seen another prime minister step down in the UK. I have to ask just what you know um, about, you know, politics. If that was the system here in the United States with as divided as we are, do you think we'd have leaders resigning at the same rate? That's a really good question. Um, you know, there's been a lot of kind of what if work uh, if the United States were to adopt a parliamentary style system. Um Maybe it's it's a really good question. Um, you know, we think that parliamentary systems um, are possibly more reflective of public will than ones that include the the unique kind of constellation of features that the United States does. But I I really don't know. I think it's just a, a difficult time to to be a leader, and I think that there are a lot of um, elements uh, in the mass public that are, are really happening worldwide uh, that lead to kind of a, a period of of acrimony. You know, you hear so many people talk about, oh, we're, we're more divided than blank, we're more divided than this. As someone who actually knows uh, the history of politics, someone who knows politics inside and out, is there any kind of time in American history to relate the political division that we are in right now? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch of different metrics of, of polarization that we could appeal to. Uh, I think the, the easiest ones that allow for these temporal comparisons are sort of institutional measures. So, you know, how uh, polarized is Congress relative to itself, you know, throughout the entire run? And really, you have to go back to kind of 1890s, if not 1860s and 1850s to see this level of, of partisan division. So, yes, if people are saying, oh, my goodness, things have never been this bad, um, for their lifetime, they're probably correct. Uh, that being said, 
polarization in American politics is kind of the norm. Uh, we went through this period in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, maybe 1950s, and we're starting to develop theories of American politics where it was oddly not polarized. You had, you know, what had been described as sort of four-party politics. You had liberal and conservative wings within both of the major parties that kept things kind of close in terms of the, the partisan division. So that was weird, and we're, I think, returning to normal, and maybe that's good, maybe that's not. <laughs> You know, and, and heading into as we are divided into these midterms, you know, and we're seeing what we see every two years, especially, you know, midterms of a four year presidency. And, and that is uh, expect the other party to gain seats. Um, that is the norm. And uh, is there been a time uh, in American politics where that didn't happen, where the party in power gained seats? I can't remember that. I mean, this seems, you know, the polling and everything you see kind of seems the norm for how I remember politics being the last 20 years. Oh, easily. Uh, and it's been the norm since the 1930s. I mean, I can count on one hand. I think there have been three instances of midterm elections in the modern era, really kind of 1930s onward, uh, that we can see a you know, party that controls the presidency does not lose seats in the midterm. They had one in the 1930s with FDR kind of riding this big New Deal wave. You've got a, a look at 1998, which is widely interpreted as Republicans overplaying their hand on, on the Clinton impeachment. And then you get the weird post 9-11, 2002 um, electoral context. So with those three exceptions, you know, the, the party in, that controls the presidency has lost seats in the um, in the midterm. And I think that's likely going to happen again this year. And looking at the midterms, looking at I mean, you got people already talking 2024, Professor. I mean, I, I'm exhausted. <laughs> You've got people already talking 2024. Who's going to run? Who's not going to run? What's the primary stage going to look like? You've got all this talk. And then you've got one of the presidential hopefuls from 2020 forming his own party, trying to get a, a third party going on. You've got another person from the 2020 um, Democrat hopefuls uh, dropping out of the party. I, I mean, we see all of this. Is this the perfect time for there to be a real third party in America? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that it is. Uh, the history teaches us, and we get the best look at this, uh, if we look at, look at kind of state-level politics, is that you know, there has to be a big issue that um, the people are really interested in and the people really feel they're underrepresented on that isn't actually picked up by the major parties. And I don't know that that's actually happening right now. I think that there's sort of a missing middle and that there's sort of a uh, there's a cadre of individuals in the electorate who would like to see something else. Um, but they're not really clearly able to articulate what that is. And so I think the history of third parties that are mostly successful are ones in which. It can't just be a, we need something else, kind of like Andrew Yang is saying. We need something else. Well, everyone agrees that, but you have to articulate what that is. And when a third party is able to effectively do that, that's when they do well. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical that this is the, the third party moment. But if something like that were to hit the national stage, yeah, then I think the conditions are right for you've got enough people saying we need something other than the two-party system. And then plus this additional issue split that the parties, the major parties aren't effectively dealing with, those are the kind of conditions you look for. 
You know, looking at how just, I, I use the word married, how married people are to their parties, right? I mean, it seems this person's got the, the party letter next to my name. I'm going with everything they say. And we seem to see that on issues, too. And I, I want to know how you're looking at this. You know, the bail reform issue obviously is huge here in New York State. Uh, the southern border issue has been talked about in a lot of the midterm elections. And it seems like, you know, it, either it's all or nothing with the two-party system, and there's this lack of of wanting to compromise and say, well, you've got a point, but I want to push back with just this. Instead, it's it's all or nothing. Are you seeing the same thing? Oh, absolutely. I think that's been a, a process that's been continuing for a couple of decades now. There's just a push toward consistency. It's uncomfortable to be you know, a Democrat except for this issue when your party is moving on it. And so when we look at these kinds of things, um, yes, it's true that some people will find a new party home if that issue is important enough to them. But for the most part, you tend to change your issue positions to be in line with your party. We think that's the, the causal ordering of things. And so, yeah, I think people are, are good, motivated reasoners. They don't like to have discomfort in their environment. And yeah, they will change if their party changes. That that tends to be what we see. Speaking of those issues, going back to the midterms on a national level, obviously over the summer, the abortion issue uh, passed down from the uh, Supreme Court was a big issue. Is that something that you think will cost Republicans a few seats that they were thinking to gain in two weeks? It very much could. You know, that coupled with um, you know, January 6th, I think, could hurt the Republicans. I still expect them to take control of the House, absolutely. But uh, if you look at just what are called the fundamentals-only models, which are things like presidential approval, state of the economy, it's looking like, you know, a plus 40 Republican year um, just on the basis of, of those fundamentals. I don't know that they're going to do that well. Um, I don't exactly know how to interpret underperformance uh, among Republicans, then, is it, you know, an abortion effect? Or could it just be that they did exceedingly well at the congressional level in 2020, and so their ceiling is a lot higher? Um, so I think that those things kind of together might conspire to, to make a, a victory less complete than it could have been. You know, obviously, the January 6th committee is another, you know, there's one party that that's all they talk about. There's another party that uh, completely ignores it. Do you think that will go down in history as more of a uh, political ploy or will go down in history as what the committee found? Oh, gosh, (laughs) I think it's both. Uh, You know, it's impossible to ignore that there are political reasons uh, for keeping it in the news cycle. Um, but, you know, if I can hang up my strategic electoral lens political scientist brain for a second, I also think there are real issues at stake here that, you know, somebody needs to, to look into. So, um, yeah, the, the profiles and courage would be, yeah, they're doing this because it's in the best interest of democratic governance. And, you know, it just so happens to also be potentially electorally benefit um, for them. So both, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I, I've, I've always said, you know, we, we had um, Chris Jacobs, Congressman Chris Jacobs was on here, and he actually voted to have the committee so the Republican Party could nominate who would be on that committee. I, I, now, this is just my interpretation. I'd like to know what you think. I think that will go down in history as a misplay by the Republican Party. I think so. I, well, I mean, it's hard to say. Um, you know, on the one hand, they can say, as it currently is structured, hey, we didn't play ball from day one because we knew this was a sham. And so if they continue to frame it in that light, you know, maybe the the electorate moves with them. Um, if they're on the committee and things still don't go 
in a way that's beneficial to them, then they've kind of you know created an own goal, uh, if you will, that, you know, hey, we were here and we still didn't stop the train from moving. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to say how that one will play out historically. Now at the state level, we see Lee Zeldin and Kathy Hochul, depending on what poll you look at, you know, there's all different polls out there, but it's a close race regardless, closer than I think people in New York State expected. But, you know, you look around and you look at other states, Louisiana, Kentucky, these are quite conservative Trump red voting states that have Democrat governors. So it's not uncommon for a party that is not the majority to win the governorship. Why is that? Oh, that's a great question. I don't. I don't really know. I think one of the the guests on, you know, Ben was was talking about how governors just have a different type of constituency, and I think that that might be the case. Um, I don't really know. I'm also not super sanguine about the prospects of, of seeing um, a Republican governor in New York anytime soon, even though the polls are are quite close. But uh, it could be just something about uh, that statewide office in places where they know that it's kind of a figurehead. If you think about where the, the center of power is in Albany, you know, in spite of all the discussion of you know, Cuomo being sort of an imperial power and policymaking being three people in a room, the state legislature has a tremendous degree of power in, in New York. And if the governor were elected from the other party, they're really not going to get a whole lot done um, against a, a fairly common you know, Democratic legislature. So I think that there might be some kind of calculation where well, it doesn't really matter because the legislature is going to do what they're going to do. So that could be part of this. Um, I, I think that that might explain part of the patterns that we see in places like you know, Massachusetts, Maryland, Louisiana. Um, but I'm not really sure. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Maryland. Um, and so you think, regardless of what the polls say now, you think it's still Kathy Hochul uh, in, in, on Election Day? I, I do. Um, I, I think that, you know, the downstate advantage is just so great for her that it would take a, a tremendous kind of windfall for, for Zeldin at this point. That being said, uh, Democrats don't seem super excited about her, um, and you would need pretty good turnout from downstate. And you know, Democrats in the city don't turn out at high rates to begin with. So, yeah, it's possible that the combination of Democratic defections, independents turning in the other direction, good Republican turnout, and low kind of Democratic base turnout could could conspire to create a you know a situation that that does favor someone like Lee Zeldin. But I I'm skeptical. I guess isn't that amazing? You know, we talk so much. It seems now I know social media is not the real world, but you know, so much talk about politics these days, midterm elections. I mean, it's seeping into everything. You can't watch an NFL game without a commercial telling you to go and vote. Isn't it amazing that there is still a turnout issue on election day, especially in even number years? I think so. I mean, well, plus people like us are weird, Joe. (laughs) I've been told that, yes. Politics is our thing, and we we eat, sleep, and breathe it. Um, For a lot of people, it's pretty far down the list of things that they care about. And there used to be kind of a normative aspect to that. Like we we want this sort of middle to be apathetic because it keeps the the fifteen percent on either side from really really getting at each other. So, you know, there's there's something to that. I maybe happily people have other things to do with their lives other than pay attention to politics. Yeah. <laughs> well, Professor, thank you so much for joining me. It's going to be an interesting next two weeks with the midterms, and I hope that we can recap all of this with you uh, following Election Day. 
Me too. I'll be happy to be there. All right. Professor Jacob Nyheisel from the University at Buffalo. Thank you so much for joining me. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.